Before we open God's word, let's bow our heads for a short word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thou art so good to us. We certainly do not deserve it, but we're so thankful that thy son came to reveal this great truth about the God that we serve, that even though thou art unapproachable in thy majesty, vast beyond our ability to understand, yet thou art also our loving Father. And what a blessing it is to know that the Father who loves us is the God of the universe, and so nothing can place us outside of thy care or thy provision for us. Heavenly Father, help us to remember this always, to fasten our eyes upon thee, that in all things we may look to thee and to thee alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The scriptures opened up to the ninth psalm, Psalm chapter 9, or the ninth psalm, I guess, since they're song numbers. The ninth psalm, beginning with the first verse. I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sattest in the throne, judging right. Thou hast rebuked the heathen. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end. And thou hast destroyed cities. Their memorial is perished with them. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Sing praises to the Lord, which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble which I suffer of them that hate me, thou that liftest me up from the gates of death, that I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in thy salvation. The heathen are sunk down in the pit which they have made, In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Read the entire psalm. 
The book of Psalms is actually the hymn book of the Old Testament. Each one is an individual song, and though we don't have the melodies anymore or know what they sounded like, we still have the words and the sentiments preserved. You'll see some markings in here, which I didn't read, things like Selah and Hegeon, maybe. I don't know uh, the correct pronunciation. Some people think they may be musical indications or uh, maybe an indication for a, a cymbal crash or a trumpet sound or something. But we have no trouble understanding the sentiment of the psalmist and the things that he wrote, or even in relating to the things that he wrote about. You know, it's, the Bible, of course, is a living book. Christ himself was the word made flesh for us. And the things that are written here are not so much a historical text as they are a living one. They tell us things uh, not only about God, but things about ourselves and about the world we find ourselves in. The contrast here in this psalm is between the Lord who is almighty, permanent, immortal, and those that would think to oppose him here below simply calls them men. It's an interesting distinction, and it's one that's made in the church, and I don't think anywhere else. You may have heard the term before church, the church, and the world as two distinct groups. And if you'll bear with me, I've said this before, but I, I think it bears repeating here. How would you define the two? How would you define the church and how would you define the world? I heard a definition once a number of years ago that stuck with me and it's my, I I don't have a gift for memorizing long quotations but short ones I can handle. And the definition given was the church is a society of people organized around God. And the world is simply a society of people organized without God. That's all. And we see the contrast or the difference between the two. You know, currently the hot topic in the news is, of course, the invasion of Ukraine and the fighting that's going on over there. The alliances and counter-alliances, the great powers, weapons, technology, and of course now we live in a digital age so the information is almost immediate. Seems like every soldier has a smartphone with them and reporters report right from the front. And we get to see the effects of the operation of the kingdom of the world. The kingdoms of the world. And their uh, desires for power and influence. But we don't so easily see the impact of the church or the believers that are, as I said, organized around God. That's not quite as obvious in the world that we live in. It doesn't feature on TikTok or YouTube or Facebook or any other social media platform. And that's because 
the church and its effects, though they can be witnessed in the physical world, are primarily concerned with the spiritual. No one has ever seen a spiritual battle, and that's simply because it's spiritual. It's not physical. We observe physical reality with our eyes. Spiritual reality, though, is a little different. Jesus used a very good comparison. He called it like the wind. You see the effects of the wind, but you don't see the wind itself. And it's the same thing I would say with the church. We see the effects of the spiritual battle, but we don't see the battle ourselves. But here, <clears throat> the psalmist, David, he's looking at both at the same time. He had very real physical enemies, but he also understood the nature of spiritual warfare and spiritual battles. And it's interesting to see how he interpreted what was going on physically around him and in the world around him with what he understood to be the spiritual reality. <clears throat> he starts off with, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. Wholeheartedness is something that the Lord requires from us. He won't deal with a half a heart or a divided heart. That's unfortunate for most of us, I think. At least we would think it to be so. Because as humans, we like to hedge our bets, don't we? We like to um, <clears throat> have one foot in one spot and another foot in another so that if things go bad, we... Uh, we, we have a backup plan. I casually follow some of the financial things in this world. I don't have a pension. And so uh, I follow kind of what's going on in, in the world of finance. And something notable happened in the early part of this year. For the first time, what's called a conservative portfolio, which is a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds, has done worse than almost any other time over the last 40-odd years. So it indicates a, a degree of disruption. And of course, the idea is that in times of uncertainty, government bonds, especially if they're in from a, a country that's uh, stable and uh, powerful, someone like the US, perhaps, those go up in value because there's this so-called flight to safety. People look for a safe place to put their money. They don't want to lose it. So they go and they buy government bonds, usually U.S. T-bills. In times when things are perhaps less uncertain and, and looking more robust in terms of uh, growth and, and, uh, and progress, then people put their money in the markets and buy equities instead, portions of companies in the stock market, hoping to profit off their new ideas and growth. And so the idea of having bonds and equities is it's a way to manage your risk. When things are bad, the, the bonds perform well. When things are good, the equities perform well. And then by, by doing this, you've got one foot in each camp. But that's not how the Lord works. He requires a whole heart. He doesn't allow us to hedge our bets. Christ's words to his disciples were this, 
take up your cross and follow me. Even those who wanted to delay their decision, there was one who seemed to have a very good excuse. He said, let me go bury my father first, and then I'll come follow you. We don't know exactly what that means. Some people think maybe his father was sick or elderly and hadn't died yet, and he wanted to wait until his father passed before he would join Jesus. But Jesus gave him some sort of a puzzling answer, at least at first glance. He said, let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Let the dead bury their dead. What's important? What has value? What is permanent? You know, we we spend massive amounts of money in our healthcare system to keep people alive for a little longer, yet we all know that one day each one of us will die unless the Lord returns in glory before then. So where do we put our priorities? How do we, how do we serve the Lord with a whole heart? That's a tough question. <clears throat> it's not something that I profess to have fully figured out because I think it's, it's much like following Jesus. There was an initial decision to leave all and follow him. But then there also has to be all of these little decisions along the way. And there came a time, too, where Jesus turned to his disciples and said, will you also turn back from following me? And Peter answered for the twelve when he said, where will we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Always the Lord requires a whole heart. Now, that's not such an unreasonable request. Why? Well, first of all, you can't keep what you have. What will you do with the time you've been given? 70, 80 years maybe, if everything goes well? But it can certainly be a lot less. No one on their deathbed ever looked back and said, I wish I had spent more time on the golf course, or I wish I had spent more time at my job. So what will you trade your limited time for? And when God offers us eternity, how could anything less than all be something we'd be willing to trade for that? You see, in that, in that lens of eternity, everything else falls into its proper place. <clears throat> David says in the, in the third verse, When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. He was talking about a future event as if it were a current reality. He says when, eventually, but it's, there's no, there's no um, confusion as to what will happen. He says they're going to turn back, they're going to fall, and they're going to perish at the presence of Almighty God. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sattest in the throne judging right. See, this is the problem that we have. 
our current perspective is limited. We're looking through as a, like a little keyhole at time. I, I remember it once being compared to uh, you know, riding in a boxcar where the, the door is only slightly open, just a crack, and you can just catch that little glimpse as you're going by, and, and the world's going by that little crack, and that's what you see, and once it's past that window, it's gone forever. But in the light of eternity, when you consider all of it, it's not gone forever. God is so great. Your brother Doug talked about this morning about the, the element of time with God, his foreknowledge. And I have to admit, I, my, my mind sort of short circuits when we get talking about these things because they're just simply too big. Uh, I understand that God is so big that he actually encompasses time. What does it look like to be outside of time? I have no idea. I've only existed within time. So to how to know what it would be like to know something ahead of time, I can only relate that again to time, knowing something before it happens. But that's a, that's a time word. Before is rooted in time. But if you are willing to temporarily park your mental inabilities to understand these things and to simply accept that God is so great that he can even encompass time itself, then everything falls into its proper place. Then everything will indeed eventually turn out right. If you knew that, how would you behave right now? If you knew eventually every evil deed would be properly judged and dealt with, and you knew that every good deed would be properly rewarded, how would you live your life right now? This is the reality that David was living in. This is why he could say these things in this psalm. Thou hast rebuked the heathen, thou hast destroyed the wicked, thou hast put out their name forever and ever. Had that happened in David's life? No. Has that happened in our lifetime? No. But through the eyes of faith, David could see that day was coming. Because for God, he lives in the eternal now. There is no problem with time. We wait. We get vexed by waiting. We miss an appointment or a plane flight or a, the bus. I mean, that was something I remember as a child, right? We were, my parents were up on top of a hill, and there was a little bus shelter down by the road about, I don't know, let's call it two, three hundred meters maybe from the house. And I remember coming around the corner and you'd see the bus pull up and then you really start to run <laughs> and, and running down that hill. And in the wintertime, there's snow on the ground, you ran. And if you're running down a hill, you can cover, speed, cover ground pretty fast. And I remember always being fascinated when I would come home that night from school or that at the end of the day from school and I'd trudge up that hill to my parents' place and I was surprised how far the distance was between those footprints because I'd been running full speed down that hill. But all of those problems exist because of time. But for one who can understand that there is a God greater than time, then everything can fall into its proper place. He shall judge the world in righteousness. One, 
one thing was pointed out to me recently when we were looking through the, uh, the, the crucifixion of Christ. These days we're very familiar with courtroom drama and uh, legal language, having seen it in, say, movies or television shows or even uh, on the news. But Jesus was taken from trial to trial, I think about four of them, in the course of less than 12 hours. First before the Sanhedrin, then his first trial with Pilate, then off to Herod, and then his final trial again with Pilate when he was brought back. And one thing that I didn't realize about those events, I mean, I always kind of understood they were, they were almost like these Again, like a courtroom drama that was being played out. But I, I didn't realize what they really indicated. They showed what a mockery human justice really is. We make a big deal about blind justice, the, the blindfolded woman with the scales and the sword in her hand outside of the courthouse. But we know the reality in the fallen world that, uh, in which we live, that even in the Western democracies, justice isn't completely blind. Those who have money can afford the best lawyers. And those who have little are sometimes wrongly convicted. And we got to see how grotesque it all really was with Christ. What should have been a fair trial under Roman law, which was the, the highest legal expression of humanity up to that point, was a mock trial for a man who was definitely not guilty. Pilate himself said so. Brought before the bar of religious opinion, the moral courts, where the Sanhedrin should have judged Christ as being not guilty, they brought in false witnesses. And finally, the only thing they could convict him of was the thing that he admitted himself, that he was the Son of God. But what a relief it is to know that one day, the judge of all the earth will judge rightly, and everything will be laid bare. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Every story from the war zone, every tragedy and travesty of morality and human justice that has ever happened will one day be set right. And innocent children who have suffered and died will be welcomed by their Father in heaven one day. And those who committed those atrocities will be rightly judged. We don't see it yet. In this current world, it looks like the bad guys sometimes get away. But one day, we'll understand who the good guys were, who the bad guys were, and every, everything will be properly sorted out. That's a hard thing to maintain in, the, in this confusing world that we live in. It, again, something that needs to, be, um, needs to be grasped in faith. But then what is faith? Is it some wishful thinking, as, as some have, have called it, pie in the sky, by and by? Or is it something more than that?
Allow me to read a short passage from the letter to the Hebrews. The 12th chapter, beginning with the first verse, I'll just read a couple verses here. You don't need to turn. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now listen to this, the second verse. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking unto Jesus. That's an interesting choice of words that the author used there, looking. Do you recall in the Old Testament, there was a time when The children of Israel murmured against God, against his provision for them. And it says the Lord sent fiery serpents or poisonous snakes throughout the camp. And they began to bite people. And the people realized, of course, like we all do, we don't seem to realize we've done anything wrong until we're punished. But they realized that they had offended God, that they had gone against his provision, spoken against him as they had done before, and they begged Moses to intercede, to pray on their behalf to God, to do something about these poisonous snakes. And so Moses took that prayer to God, and he prayed, and God said, okay, make a bronze serpent, a brass serpent, a brass snake, and put it up on a pole. I find that so fascinating because not a short time before, or a fairly short time before, God had instructed Moses not to make any kind of graven image. And here he says, make an image, and make an image of the snake, which was a symbol of the adversary of Satan himself. He said, take, make a snake out of brass and put it up on a pole and hold it up. And the solution was, you needed to only look at that snake to live. My children have these uh, Bible stories, audio Bible stories, and it's interesting to hear how those accounts are dramatized for for children, told in in a story format. And in the story, there's a little girl who gets bitten, and they're dressed desperately trying to get the little girl to a place where she can look at the snake to see it and live. And... You think all you had to do was look. It didn't matter who you were, what your position was. All you had to do was look. That's it. The interesting thing is, like we just read in Hebrews, looking unto Jesus is the same. That's actually belief. The two, at least as far as I can figure it, are synonymous in Scripture. Looking and believing. You remember Peter, when he stepped out of the boat onto the water, became the second man in history to ever walk on water? I 
as long as he looked at Jesus, as long as his eyes were full of Christ, he did the impossible. He walked on water. When his eyes were taken away from Christ, when he looked about, it says, at the winds and the, and the sea that was boisterous, then he began to sink. When our eyes are full of God, that is, that is faith. That becomes the expression of faith that comes out in our life. Now we see what happens. And it's so interesting to read David's words here for us and then to consider what happened when he took his eyes off of God and instead put them on a woman he shouldn't have looked at. Do you see what happens? The man who wrote, the judge of all the earth is going to do right. He's going to right every wrong. Finds himself not only lusting but committing adultery and finally murder to cover it up. How had he forgotten these things? He took his eyes off the one he should have been looking at. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Do you realize that the Lord never takes his eyes off us? Have you considered that? He is always looking for us, like that father in the parable of the prodigal son. When his son was still a great way off, he saw him. And that, that moment, that has to be one of the tenderest moments in Scripture that are recorded. There, across the shimmering haze, perhaps in the midday sun, in the Palestinian heat, on a dusty road, he sees a single man walking alone. Not quickly, maybe stumbling, but there's something peculiar about his walk, something distinct about it, and the father thinks, could that be? Is that really? Have you ever had the experience when you're perhaps somewhere else and you see someone and you think it's another person? Like, oh, they're so-and-so. And then they turn around, oh, no, <laughs> it's not them. But here he looks and he sees, yes, yes, he walks like my son. He seems about the right height. Could it be? And he begins, he says, and he runs. He runs to meet him. God's eyes have never stopped looking for any of us. His eyes have always been toward us for good. He wants us to look to him. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. To finish this sermon, I'd like to go back to where I began. The church and the world. So why do we need the church? One reason I can think of, I don't know if you've ever seen this before, if you've ever been walking in the city and you see a large group of people and they're all looking at something, what do you do? Do you also look? You know, there was kind of a uh, humorous little cartoon I remember seeing once. 
<clears throat> There's a big crowd, and everyone's trying to see what's, what the crowd's looking at. And in the middle of the crowd, there's a man going, stop looking at me. <laughs> because that's what happens, right? When other people are looking, we want to look too. That's one good reason I can think of for the church. When we, as a body of Christ, fasten our eyes on Jesus, look to him, what will others do? When those around you are looking to Christ, you're going to be inclined to look too. If enough of us look to Jesus, like the early church, the world will change. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. Amen. This concludes our service.